The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Rohit Bhargava, author of The Future Normal, How We Will Live, Work, and Thrive in the Next Decade, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Rohit Bargava for the seventh time to talk about the book he has co-authored with Henry Coutinho Mason, The Future Normal, How We Will Live, Work, and Thrive in the Next Decade, published by Idea Press. Rohit Bhargava is on a mission to inspire more non-obvious thinking in the world. He is the three-time Wall Street Journal bestselling author of nine books on marketing, innovation, diversity, and trends, including his number one bestseller, Non-Obvious Megatrends. Rohit has been invited to keynote events in 32 countries around the world. His insights have been used by the World Bank, NASA, Intel, Disney, Colgate, Coca-Cola, Under Armour, American Express, and hundreds of other organizations to win the future. And of great interest to me, a recovering ad man, earlier in his career, Rohit spent 15 years in leadership roles at two renowned ad agencies, Leo Burnett and Ogilvy. And interesting facts, he is a lifelong fan of anything having to do with the Olympics. He's been to five so far and was sad to miss Tokyo, but is really looking forward to Paris 2024. And more significantly, he is now a member of a very exclusive club, the Marketing Book Podcast Seven Timers Club. Yay! Rohit, congratulations on the future normal and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Seven timer. I love it. Yes. I love it. There's only one other person that's a seven timer and only two eight timers. So, my friend, you're pretty much up on the Mount Rushmore of the Marketing Book Podcast. <laughs> that is motivation to publish more books more quickly. Yeah, and you, Idea Press is your company as well. You're a publisher. And I only figured that out after I'd interviewed you about four times, and I commented like, wow, Idea Press seems to publish a lot of your books. And you said, uh, yeah, that's that's my company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't lead with it because, you know, it's uh, the publishing company happened to be a business that I wanted to start because I wanted to do books a certain way. And so it just kind of erupted at that time. Yeah, and I've had other authors who Idea Press has published. So I should say, though, that uh, Rohit Bargava, when you, I don't know if you remember this, but when you filled out the form to schedule this interview, you included a note and you said, I will have onions nearby in case on-demand crying is required so that we can go through the full suite of emotions. 
<laughs> I did do that. I don't remember. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, you'll be happy to know that uh, thanks to practice, I no longer need the onions. I can just summon the tears on demand. Yes. Uh, well, you're a pro. But it is it is emotional, and I appreciate you coming back and sort of setting aside your sterling reputation for you know an hour or so to, to be on this particular podcast. So you've been on seven times, but there was also actually an eighth time, which doesn't count towards the tote board, towards your frequent flyer miles. And that is, uh, <laughs> you were on Authors in Quarantine getting cocktails during the lockdown. Where's my bourbon? That was a great conversation, lots of fun. And then you came right back after that, and... I interviewed you about the book Virtual Meetings, and it was right during the lockdown, so it was extremely relevant for the listeners. So, See, that should totally count. And by the way, I, I seem to recall we did do a reverse interview where I interviewed you, which I think should put me in the nine-timers club <laughs> exclusively on top of everyone else. I'm just saying. Yes. It, what, tell us what that was for. That was for, a, uh, for, uh, for authors, uh, uh, like a virtual event that you were doing for them. Yeah, it was actually, it started that way, but it's going to be the non-obvious crash course in book publishing and marketing. And that's oh. a course that we're about to launch. Um, and you're going to be one of the featured experts. And there's uh, probably about 40 um, so far experts in various areas. Um, and we had a great conversation about uh, podcasts and what podcast hosts look for. And, you know, every author wants to be on great podcasts like yours. And so you sort of broke it down in terms of I mean, you get pitched for people all the time. So how do you decide who to put on the show? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Boy, there's over 300 authors that I think I know <laughs> who might be interested in watching that. <laughs> so maybe I can uh, maybe I can email all of them once it's once it's out there. Put me to work, man. I'm a Rohit fan. So you are going to the Paris Olympics in 2024. That's right. In fact, they just started opening up some of the lottery draws for tickets. So I'm oh. very excited because you get your time slot and then you have to wait online and I have multiple computers. I mean, it's a whole thing, man. It's a whole thing. Well, yeah. And I'm now a guy like you knows how to, to negotiate that. So my wife might be going to the Olympics in Paris in 2024 to see the dressage competition, which is going to be out at the Palace of Versailles. Oh, okay. I don't know nice. if that was one you were going to be going to. And if I play my cards right, she might bring me, but she said that kind of depends on my behavior between now and summer. <laughs> well, you know, um, the good news for your wife is that that is not an uh, event that I'm particularly interested in. But when I go through all the lotteries, if there are tickets available for that, I'm happy to purchase them on your behalf. And then I'll just, you know, I'll give them to you and that way you get them first. Oh, wow. Then I can say to my wife, and I and really mean it, I know a guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Although I'm not sure whether that one is one that typically like sells out because it depends on the venue. Oh, so okay. Too much in the weeds. Well, but, she is uh, so much into dressage. She's got the horses. She's like at the okay. highest level, and it's a there's a very short distance between hobby and mental illness, and she's pretty much crossed it uh, into <laughs> this whole dressage world. So anyway, onto your book. I did some of my own research about the future in preparation for this interview, Rohit. I okay. spoke to someone who, like Rohit Bhargava, is an international man of mystery. Uh, he's a British secret agent, and this is what he had to say about the future. Well, um, everyone has a flying car, entire meals come in pill form, and the Earth is ruled by damn dirty apes! So, anyway, uh, none of those things that Austin Powers mentioned were in your book. Uh, however... You did touch on not flying cars, but on drone delivery. 
You talked about food, but, but not in pill form. And you talked about governing, although it was not government by damn uh, dirty apes. So, you know, there was, there was something for everyone. But of course, when I'm reading through, I'm looking for those things. To, you know, it's kind of a check the box. So I wanted to <laughs> read the, uh, a couple of things from the intro just to give the listener a sense of uh, the book. On chapter four, you write, in this book, you'll read about the ideas and instigators that are bringing about new ways to satisfy these fundamental needs and wants, changing not just complete industries in the process, but also sending waves out into the wider culture and society. You'll read about a startup that could exponentially reduce the environmental impact of the food industry by taking an old NASA technology to synthesize protein from carbon dioxide. You'll meet researchers who may supercharge learning in the future thanks to their pioneering work creating muscle memory through a passive haptic learning glove that uses electrical pulses to teach people how to play the piano in minutes. You'll discover companies working to refreeze the Arctic in generational loneliness Mass-produced solar microgrids create urban forests and popularize the practice of sharing your job. And then over to page seven, you write, we have organized this book into three big thematic sections that each include 10 short topical chapters. In the first section, we explore how we will connect, get healthy, and thrive, looking at innovations in health, learning, media, and entertainment that are poised to affect our daily lives. In the second part of the book, we turn our lens to how we will live, work, and consume. Moving from the workplace to our home lives and what we buy, the chapters in this section will offer a new perspective on our consumption and careers and how they will likely shift in the future normal. Finally, in part three, we will focus on longer-term innovations that are fundamentally shaping how humanity will survive beyond the next decade. So, Rohit, you write on page two that the truth is that the future is abandoned, defunded, ignored, or ridiculed just as often as it is realized. So the real challenge isn't predicting the future, but rather predicting what will become normal. Explain what you mean. A lot of times we think about the future as this thing that is either fictional and fantasy or that is maybe going to happen, but probably won't because we'll screw it up. Like the British secret agent that I spoke to. <laughs> yeah, sort of. And uh, and what we wanted to try and, and talk about in the book was what would it take for the future that we're writing about and seeing happening in pockets and in small ways to become normal, as in for everybody? And there's famous cliches talking about the future. And one of the famous cliche quotes is that the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And the idea of normal to us was a word that meant it was evenly distributed. It wasn't just for the richest people who could go on the rocket and go to the go to the upper atmosphere to see the earth. It wasn't for the people who could just afford these really futuristic things like flying cars. It was for all of our lives. What would it take to make these future aspects, make these future innovations for all of us? So remind listeners why following trends and what might become normal in the future is beneficial to marketing. Well, marketing at the end of the day is about persuasion. And uh, you can't persuade unless you understand people, the people that you're trying to reach. And I often say in my, uh, in my keynote talks that the people who understand people always win. Yes. And for me, 
trends are all about understanding people through understanding behavior because something doesn't become a trend unless it demonstrates or describes what humans are actually doing and how they're influenced. And so I think that trends are really valuable as a way of understanding how, where people's mindsets are so that you can then reach them about whatever you're trying to reach them about. Wow. You know, if a listener doesn't take anything else away from this conversation, the people who understand people always win. I caught some audio of one of your keynotes of people. You know, you're very popular. And also, I think we, before we started the interview, you've been keynoting at 32 countries, and you want to keynote at others, and this show is in like over 160 countries. Is there a list of the, of the 32 you've been in so that listeners can start to crowdsource you know, to get you to the other countries? <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, We're here I'm to sure help, Rohit. List somewhere. I mean, we we counted them at one point. Um, I don't think I've ever published the list because it okay. feels a little braggy to do so. Um, no, but, but I can. Uh, I have a list. Yeah, I mean, I have one somewhere. <laughs> I think it's see. It's fine for me to interview you about your book, and it's also okay for me to try and crowdsource you to you know uh, go to the other. Uh, the other 150 countries. So I'm just going <laughs> to well, add you know, it. We, um, yeah, I haven't, uh, I mean, this would not necessarily help me to be there, but one of the things we did announce at uh, South by Southwest, which we're trialing right now, is a way of doing our virtual keynotes, Henry and I, in uh, 71 different languages um, live. So that's really cool. That's a really cool usage of AI. And that's something we just announced and we're working on right now. Oh, well, I'll make sure to link up to that on the, your episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. So understanding people is important. So for, you know, and trends and the future, uh, don't, don't get caught blindsided. But for someone who is not Rohit Bhargava, and there is truly only one of them, other than subscribing to your non-obvious newsletter, how can marketers and salespeople, you know, efficiently follow trends maybe throughout the year? Well, I mean, one is that there are a lot of people who publish things like trend reports and trend insights, and I'm a fan of them, and I subscribe to all of them pretty much. And I think that you can start to form your own picture once you see some of the things that are already out there and what the things are that people are are putting out there. And the one thing to remember is, I mean, when I say trend, I use something that uh, in in my marketing lingo, I would describe as an insight, yes. something that requires thought, something that puts multiple things together and says, this is what's happening. A lot of what people put out there as trends is just an observation of something that exists, but not necessarily having any thought to it. So if somebody says- Or something oh, you're trying to sell. <laughs> yeah, or something you're trying to sell, right? So if somebody says like drones are a trend or chat GPT is a trend, like these are not trends. These are technologies. These are platforms that exist. And the trend is something else that is being done with these things, with these platforms. So the first is to reframe your thinking of what a trend is. A trend is never just an observation of like, oh, this platform exists. Like that's not a trend. Right. <laughs> I remember that from all the non-obvious books where you, you explain that. But when I posted on LinkedIn that I was going to be interviewing you, you know, not to brag, but... I uh, one one person posted a comment and said, you know, I love to go back and look at these things, predictions like ten years later, and you know, sort of deride the people. Well, hold on. As I recall from all your non-obvious trend books, which you haven't, the, the last one you published was in 2020, but you actually went back and scored yourself on how you were doing. Talk about that. 
Yeah, exactly right. And and to be clear, I didn't. It wasn't me scoring myself. It was me scoring the trends based on feedback from our readers and people that I was interacting with in keynotes and people that I was hearing from. So oh. it was partially me evaluating the trends, but it was also me listening to what people were saying and telling us about the trends in workshops when we would talk about them as to whether they were still relevant years later. And so that book was based on 10 years of research. And you're right, at the back of Non-Obvious Megatrends, there's a full recap of more than 100 trends with a letter grade against each one based on whether it continued to accelerate and matter over time or whether it kind of faded away. Yes. So let's talk about Part one of three, how we will connect, get healthy, and thrive. Let's jump to chapter four. On uh, page 44, something jumped off the page that kind of related to me and anyone listening. And you write, you are reading this book because you already understand the importance of lifelong learning. In the future normal, stealth learning can make it seamless and enjoyable too. (laughs) Talk about stealth learning. Yes, stealth learning is the idea that we can uh, bake learning into things that don't seem like they're classes or coursework, similar to how uh, you might kind of blend up the vegetables and put them in the tomato sauce so that the kids don't know that they're eating the vegetables while they have the pizza. Let's not give away all the parenting secrets here. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, they were pretty wise. They figured out some of these, right? But, you know, this was really inspired by uh, the fact that TikTok, which seems for parents of, of, you know, my age to be a colossal place where kids can waste time, actually became a real tool to teach kids really interesting things, either about what they were learning in school or just life hacks, things that they would uh, find useful in their lives. And, and so much so that the whole marketing campaign around TikTok became hashtag learned it on TikTok or hmm. learn on TikTok, because that's what they found that so many kids were doing, watching these educational videos about science or history or medicine or mental health. I mean, very unexpected, right? For people like us who might look at TikTok and be like, oh, it's just, you know, people dancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a much more than that. And I think that was just one symptom of this idea that we can learn things in very different ways. Well, you know, there are so many great uh, learning opportunities out there, uh, specifically for marketers and salespeople. You know, a lot of them are free courses. And it seems like this has big implications for creating marketing content, almost like it's going to up the content marketing arms race. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I think that uh, there, there's learning in terms of knowledge and education. There's learning in terms of new skills. And then there's educating your customer, right? Which is a form of learning where like if your customer knows more than maybe they're more likely to buy from you, which mm-hmm. is sort of the, the the idea at the heart of content marketing, right? That yeah. you educate your customer and therefore they'll become more knowledgeable and be more likely to buy from you. Right. It builds a lot of trust. Yeah, it does because you're not just pushing your message at them. You're trying to solve a, a need or answer their question. Right. You know, Whether your product people have always done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whether your product is right for them or not. So let's jump to the next chapter, uh, five, which is on ending loneliness. In a recent book that was on the Marketing Book Podcast by Mark Schaefer, who's, who's been on eight times, Rohit. I'm just holding that out there, you know. <laughs> his book, his last book was He's probably uh, way older than I am. So, you know, it's, uh, ooh, it's fair. yeah, this is the uh, <laughs> section of the podcast called the author smackdown. <laughs> his last book that was on the show was called belonging to the brand. And he writes about the importance of building community in order to 
well, to market something, but he argues that building community is the last great marketing strategy. And he, he starts out the book talking about this epidemic of loneliness, and you touch on that as well. So talk about what's going on with this, this loneliness epidemic, and what are uh, some of the trends that may come from that to, uh, to address it? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, I think this this loneliness epidemic is something that has become much more widely covered and discussed. So it's certainly not something I came up with, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. lots of people talking about this. What's interesting for us is that we actually tackled this as sort of a, a double header, if you will, um, this idea of loneliness, because there's two chapters in this section that both deal with loneliness in very different ways. And so yeah. the chapter you mentioned, Ending Loneliness... That one is all about uh, how we might be able to end generational loneliness by bringing people from multiple generations together and have them live together. And there's some really interesting pioneering communities where that's starting to happen. So you get 20-year-olds living with 60-something-year-olds uh, in the same community, and they interact with one another, and they really love it when they mm-hmm. live in a community like that. Kind of like so, certain uh, cultures in, in, around the world still have it. Maybe less so yeah, in the United so the States. Cultures, I mean, it is very uh, – in, in uh, communal and family-oriented cultures, especially, you know, Asian cultures, you do have multi-generational living, but that tends to be within the family. Mm-hmm. What this is is you're not living with your family. You're living with just someone else who you're not related to, but they happen to be from a different generation, right? Right. But it's a similar concept. Yeah, So that's what we talked about in that Ending Loneliness chapter. And right afterwards, we had a chapter called Virtual Companionship. Mm -hmm. And this one dug into the technology and the potential for us to build these relationships with technology and the potential up and downsides of that. Uh, Because it is something that that inspires a lot of uh, fear amongst people as well. Oh, are we going to start falling in love with robots and lose our ability to connect with humans, right? Is Is generally the fear that people face when they when they come to this. Uh, and more and more, what we wrote about is that you will see a future where we have people who have these relationships, and we will all have some sort of relationship with these virtual technologies, and it will become similar to how we might have a relationship with, with alcohol, right? Like you could have alcohol and have a good time and have a drink, or you could become an alcoholic. And the challenge is going to be to find that balance so that you can enjoy it responsibly and not turn into the alcoholic and, and be addicted to it, because that has a potential to happen, too. Yes. And in that chapter six, you talk about Wobot, W-O-E-B-O-T, health. Yes. And I actually downloaded that app and started talking to it. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's um, really interesting. I'd not, I'd not heard of it. That is the the mind. That's the exact mindset that we are hoping to inspire with this book. Uh, that you hear about something, and instead of saying, "Oh man, I hope that doesn't," you know, that people don't see that, you try it for yourself. You may like it, you may not like it, but the mindset of of exactly what you just demonstrated, which is I read about it and I tried it, like that is the key to being able to anticipate the future and also to be a non-obvious, what I would call a non-obvious thinker, but just to, to be more successful in the world. Like that's the mindset you got to be able to have. And I love that you did that. Yeah. So now that's that chapter six, as you mentioned, was about virtual companionship. And for those listeners who are veterans of the United States Marine Corps, at no point in chapter six do the authors talk about blow up dolls. What have we got here? A fucking comedian. 
So let's go to uh, part two, uh, how we will live, work, and consume. And chapter 11 is about augmented creativity. And the amount of (laughs) wailing and gnashing of teeth that I see on LinkedIn feed daily about chat GPT and AI, it it compels me, Rohit, (laughs) to ask you about how artificial intelligence can make us more creative. And I say that in part because the chapter was uh, not a doom and gloom, you're going to lose your job thing. It was very, I found it very exciting. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I believe. And, you know, I got to tell you, like, since the book's come out, this has probably been the most popular chapter in terms of people wanting to talk about it and inspiring it. I mean, I just uh, showed up to a uh, to a management class at a business school virtually, and they were assigned reading just this chapter. And I was sort of wondering, did you look at any of the rest of the book? Obviously, they didn't, right? Because they were assigned this one chapter. So that's all. So we had a whole conversation just about this, because I think it does capture people's attention. Yeah. And, uh, and it's hot right now. I would say that there's a couple things. So first of all, writing a book in this moment, when all of these tools are out there, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a temptation to just try and have ChatGPT write the book for us, right? We're on deadline. We're trying to get this right. stuff out. Like, if I can get AI to write the book and it's good, then why wouldn't I? And well, so we because tried of bullshitting, which I think is <laughs> yeah. you guys talk about, which you may want to touch on. But didn't you have some sort of AI tool design all the uh, artwork in the book? Well, so yes and no. Um, so we tried. Well, first of all, we tried to get it to write sections of the book and it failed because it was it was just not good enough it was cliche it wasn't good writing it was obvious it was bullshit uh-huh. uh, but we did find two uses that were really valuable uh, one was that we could feed it a chapter and our chapters were relatively short mm-hmm. and we could ask it to write a one-star review and be critical of the chapter and spotlight things that didn't make sense or arguments that were flawed oh interesting And so based on that, we actually could make the writing better because it was like having a critical reader go through and spot things that were actually deficiencies Uh in the writing. So that was useful. The second thing, to your point that we did is every chapter, we had 30 different trends uh, that were each a chapter and each one needed an icon. Some of them were pretty easy to brainstorm what the icon should be. Some of them, we kind of hit a wall. We weren't sure. And so we asked ChatGPT to suggest potential icons for the chapter. And based on the suggestions, we could start to hone in on what we wanted as the icon and then go and have the designer do it. So the technology didn't create the icon, but it did help us brainstorm what the icon should be. Yeah. Back to that clinical term, I'm referring to bullshitting. You write on page 108 about the tech journalist and author of Coders, Clive Thompson. He has argued that these generative AI programs are bullshitting, which is a reference to Harry G. Frankfurt's 2005 book, on bullshit, given their ability to produce output that sounds superficially authoritative, but is in fact often fundamentally incorrect, but it's going to get better, right? Well, it's going to get better, but I mean, think about it. Uh, It is a tool trained on what's out there and it's generating content. And so it's not illogical when you start to think about it, that it would also generate fake but real sounding sources for the fake content it's creating. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's what's happening right now. So it's a whole uh, field that now people are starting to study called AI hallucination. 
And AI hallucination refers to the idea that it's fabricating not just the text, but also the sources for that text and journal <laughs> studies and references that are totally made up that, that sound real. And so now, in addition to generating the text, one of the skills that we're going to have to be able to, to learn, and young people in particular who are using it to write like essays and term papers and stuff like that, is you have to go and see the book that it's referencing because it might not even be a book. It might just be a real sounding book from a real author. So, for example, you might have it generate text and it will create a quote that is attributed to me from my marketing book, and I'm a real person, but the book it will make up is the book that it thinks I could have written in a fictional universe, but that I never wrote. <laughs> so some of it's real, because I'm real, but the book that it created that it mentioned is not actually a book that I wrote, and the quote that it created is not actually a quote that I quote that oh, I wrote. And this brings us back to chapter three, actually, on certified media. What if you could trust the authenticity <laughs> of the media and content you consume? Because in that chapter, which I skipped over, but I mean, I read it, but it was... It was kind of troubling, Rohit. It's just about it. It goes into what you just described. Like, how do we, how do we even trust any any content uh, that we're getting these days, other than what's on the marketing book podcast, of course. So, <laughs> well, it's. Uh, I mean, it is. Look, it's going to take a a new skill set, um, and the skill set is going to be com to combine skepticism with the sort of skill set that an investigative journalist might have, which mm -hmm. is to dig into something and see whether it's actually true yeah, uh, and whether you can verify it or not. Well, let's jump to another one that I think would be of great interest, perhaps to those commercial real estate people listening and <laughs> businesses out there about impact hubs. You, you write that uh, about how, despite the explosion of virtual work for many workers that is recorded as a result of the lockdown in 2020, uh, there are strong signs that the physical office still matters. So the impact hubs was very interesting to me. I, again, I had not heard of this. Tell us about impact hubs. Yeah, impact hubs are the idea that we can create these multi-use spaces that bring together unlikely uh, combinations of people. So for example, you would have a corporate office and on the floor right below it, you'd have a nonprofit that would have a discounted office. And part of the deal of being a tenant in this space is that you would have to have some amount of time from your corporate team be spent helping the nonprofit. And it would create a community within that building mm -hmm. to create impact, which is why we sort of termed it the impact hubs. And there are multiple spaces that are being developed like this. And, and I think that what it speaks to is this idea that uh, I don't believe that it is a deep human desire to stay at home and work by yourself every day. I do think that people enjoy being in their pajamas and not having to commute for long periods of time. And where that's starting to balance out is people are saying, first of all, I don't need to go to the office five days a week in order to get that human interaction. I prefer to have some downtime, quote unquote, where I can get my things done separately alone. And I prefer to have some brainstorming time or some human interaction time where I meet with people. And the time when I'm in the office is not no longer going to be time where I sit at my desk, close my door if I have a door, and just do my stuff. Because I can do that at home. Or try to act like you're doing your stuff. Exactly, which is what we used to do because we didn't have any time to do our stuff because we were in the office nine to five, yeah, right? For or yourself, or Robert. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever period of time it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know. Um, and so – I think that there is going to be an appetite for people when they do go into the office to have more interaction. 
uh, yes. with other people to have more of a reason to go uh, and to gain inspiration from those moments when we are together with people so that when you do your work at home or remotely, uh, you'll be able to do it. Now, for some people, remote work, 100% remote work, it's ideal, right? Maybe they're, they don't have the mobility to be able to do it. Maybe they're at the point in their lives with with young children where being able to work from home is really beneficial for them. So, you know, that will still exist. But I think that there's going to be a huge growth in this kind of hybrid work. And when you have hybrid work where you work remotely sometimes and in the office sometimes, the in the office time, the way you spend that time is going to start to transform. Yeah. So, and you talk about like we work and some of these shared office spaces in that chapter, but it's like shared office, but it's with a healthy dose of purpose. Yeah. We work is, I mean, not, not, uh, we work sort of the, the early example of like the co-working space, but I think the purpose is like, you start to look at some of these membership clubs, you look at chief, which is a, a, a group, uh, a networking club and group for women exclusively. Uh, some of these organizations are not just creating spaces where you can do work. They're also bringing in speakers, they're hosting events, they're creating networking events, they're doing nonprofit partnerships. I mean, these things that are increasing your ability to connect with other people in a professional capacity, that is part of the mission of a lot of these organizations. Yeah, of course, as I read that, I'm thinking, well, shoot, I, I might want to go there. <laughs> I don't want to go to a co-working yeah. space, but I would, I would like to go to one of these impact hubs. So let's jump ahead to a couple other things that are, uh, I'm sure, will be of great interest to the listeners. There was a book on the show, a bonus episode uh, last year, I think, uh, last June, called the Carbon Almanac, and very interesting book about you know everything you need to know about the carbon and uh, global warming and all that kind of thing. The chapter on calculated consumption, chapter 18, and you write that businesses will feel pressure to publish the carbon footprint of their products. Otherwise, people will question what they are hiding. They will want to beat their competitors by improving their carbon footprint so they can proudly display it on their products. I just thought that was that was very interesting. Can you talk a little bit about this uh, calculated consumption? Yeah, I mean, even since we wrote the book, right, these things sometimes move so quickly. Oh, uh, yeah. I, when I travel, because I live in the DC area, I tend to go on United. And just recently now, when I book a flight on United, I can see the carbon emissions that are related to the flight that I'm about to take. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there are options for me to now choose to offset that. Uh, it's very visible. It's like literally part of the flight booking tool now. Um, that was not the case. I mean, you might've been able to find that information at some point somewhere, but it was not front and center in this way. Yeah. It's like looking at the food label. Yeah, it's, it sort of is. It sort of is. And in fact, many products, I mean, Allbirds is a great example. It's a sneaker brand where their label shows the sustainability impact of making that pair of shoes on the earth. Mm -hmm. That's terrific. Well, jump. let's jump ahead to one other thing here. Just uh, about two or three others here I want to ask you about before we wrap up. Chapter 19 is about guilt-free indulgence, which, Rohit, for me, it's sort of like non-alcoholic beer. I mean, what's the point of drinking beer if it doesn't have alcohol in it? What's the point of indulgence if there's no guilt? But you write that, in all seriousness, you write that we are torn between the desire to indulge ourselves and the annoying sense of guilt that comes with the awareness that our indulgences are bad for ourselves, society, or the planet. So, Rohit Bargava, what is a self-indulgent person to do? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, uh, uh, first of all, it depends on what trade-offs you're, you're willing to make, right? Um, for some people, 
certain things they would never compromise on. Uh, and the, the example I've used for a long time is I'm, uh, because I'm a travel guy, uh, I am a big uh, sort of luggage person. I will spend a lot of money on really high quality luggage because it deeply matters to me because I know I don't want my luggage to fall apart. So mm -hmm. I buy Briggs and Riley and that's my favorite brand and I like it. But uh, if you tried to convince me to spend more than 15 bucks on a pair of sunglasses, I would tell you you're crazy. I don't see the value. I lose them too often. I break them. 15 bucks is my maximum price for a pair mm -hmm. of sunglasses. Um, so it's not about having the money or not having the money, right? If I can afford high quality luggage, I can certainly afford a nice pair of sunglasses. I just don't value that. Right. And I don't choose right. to value it. So a replacement in that case is no big deal for me. Uh, when you think about guilt-free indulgence, one of my, my favorite examples of this is uh, Sky Diamond, which is a synthetic diamond producer. And most people know logically that uh, visually you cannot tell the difference between a synthetically produced diamond or a real mind diamond. Uh, you know the difference, but visually you can't tell the difference. Mm -hmm. um, most people don't have the, you know, the loop to kind of check it out and do all that, right? They're just looking at it and they can, they can see it. Uh, so in that case, and I think a lot of people know that my diamonds that are mined, I mean, it's terrible for the environment. There's all sorts of social issues associated with it. I mean, the yep. term blood diamond came about for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so this is one space where you can enjoy the diamonds and you don't have to do it from the mined diamonds, right? And there are going to be more and more products that, that fit this category. Uh, my co-author Henry, uh, because he's British loves to use the example of, um, of, uh, foie gras, which is, you know, a pretty cruel way of, of making it. If you know anything about how it's actually created and, and what's done to geese in order to, to get it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there are synthetic versions of foie gras where you can still enjoy it and not feel guilty about the level of cruelty involved in producing it. Yes. And the, another example in the book was, uh, cocoa beans, which typically have a hugely negative impact on the communities that make a living growing it. So, Let's talk about secondhand status from chapter 20. It's just another one that I just sound really interesting and I and somewhat relieved by. <laughs> you write, uh, buying, wearing, and selling secondhand products is becoming a source of social status rather than something to be hidden for fear of the social stigma of not being able to afford new items. What's what's going on there? And can I, you know, basically come out of the closet about my interest in going to thrift shops? <laughs> you absolutely can and and you know it's not even uh it's not even uh, guys who are are at our stage of life right it's young people who are now no longer having that sort of stigma that I might remember from my childhood where it's like oh you're wearing a hand me down thing and and you'd kind of get made fun of sometimes for that uh now these old products that have been worn in that have been around for a long time that are nostalgic like that's what my kids want to wear like that's what my son buys he goes to the thrift shops like he's not interested in getting that brand new thing typically he's interested in going to the thrift shop finding something cool and and that's what he wears yeah and i was of course there's all kinds of great implications for the environment there i want to quote from uh, page 180 where you um say buying wearing and selling secondhand products is becoming a source of social status rather than something to be hidden for fear of the social stigma of not being able to afford new items as Anna Angelic, a brand strategist and author of The Business of Aspiration, explains, the old status economy that was based on displays of wealth has broken down. Inexpensive goods and activities like earthing, no-meat diet, or meditation are modern status symbols. Increasingly, so too is buying secondhand. 
So last one I want to ask you about uh, from section three, how humanity will survive. In the year 2525, if man is still alive. Chapter 27 is on waste-free products. And this one, again, like all the ones I'm asking you about, was very appealing to me and reminded me of some books that have been featured on the show, like Carbon Almanac, but also Sustainable Marketing. Talk about the developments going on in waste-free products that enables us to throw things away with a clean conscience, and um, <laughs> particularly those little water bottles. Yeah, I mean, look, there's uh, there's some great examples of this, and this one was fun because we actually were able to get some of these products, and we can use them on stage and demonstrate them. So, for example, uh, from the stage at South by Southwest, I was wearing a uh, t-shirt that was indestructible that's made of ten thousand ceramic particles. The same company that makes that t-shirt uses black algae for for uh, for ink and and creates t-shirts out of garbage. Uh, Henry was wearing a pair of shoes that were biodegradable, where once the shoes wear out, you can grind them up and put them in your garden. And the whole shoe is biodegradable. So really what we tried to write about is all of these new ways of making these products that are uh, able to be produced in much more biodegradable ways and don't create the same level of waste. I mean, uh, there's another company that we that we wrote about that creates biodegradable glitter. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. And because glitter is is fun, but it's basically microplastic. <laughs> and once that washes off and goes into the waterways, like that's bad. Uh, and so when you know, uh, this is a perfect example, because when you know that biodegradable glitter exists, it would be worth the extra 17 cents to buy it. But the problem is people don't think that it, they don't know that it exists. And so part of the motivation behind writing this book in the first place was to showcase the stories of things like that so that people do read it and say, oh, I didn't even know that was out there. Like, I'm going to go check that out. Yeah, just like me. And of course, I read that and said, I can't wait. <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah, how, yeah, exactly. How can I exactly. find out more about that? So, Rowan, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I hope that they understand that the only future we can make is the one we can imagine. And what that means to me and what that meant to Henry and I is that we wanted to write a book about imagining the future that we want to see, not a book about all the shit that could go wrong. And so that's why this book is, is pretty optimistic. Uh, it's not yes. because we're pretending like bad things don't exist or that uh, stupid people might be in charge because you know, sometimes they are. Well, I think the future is now in that case, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But we wanted to celebrate the instigators and the people who are shaping a better future and try and showcase their stories in the hope that the more we can do that, the more people can read those stories and support them for themselves and at least know that there are some great things happening that will be positive in their impact for the rest of us. Well, based on this reader's reaction, I would say that tingling means it's working, Rohit. (laughs) <laughs> I hope so. I mean, that's the feedback we're getting, uh, which is which is great. Yeah, terrific. Well, what's one thing a listener could do today? Just just to go do something to get them thinking about this, uh, to put in action one of the ideas from your book. Well, so one of the things that we often get a question about is, okay, you got all these thirty things, and they're pretty wide ranging. But I work in industry X, so you know, what do I do? 
And to answer that, one of the things we did at the end of the book is we created what we called industry playlists. And the industry playlists were, okay, there's 30 trends out there, but here are the 10 that you should read first if you work in financial services or retail or government or education, you know, whatever sector you're in. And what we wanted to try and do was create an easy path for people to dig into these ideas based on what they're already interested in or what area they're working in. And so what could you do? Well, start with reading the 10 chapters that relate to what you do Mm -hmm. uh, and think about how those might apply. That's one way. The other thing is that each chapter ends with what we call provocative questions. Um, And those questions are meant to help you imagine how to take that trend and activate it within your own work or within your own life. And there's 14 industry playlists. So you could almost start by finding your industry, read those chapters, and then you're going to want to read the rest of the book. So yeah, very well done. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? And feel free to mention only Idea Press titles. <laughs> <laughs> there are some fabulous Idea Press titles that are uh, that are coming. Um, the ones that are sort of closest to coming out. Actually, we just launched one this week, which is called Wonder Hell uh, by Laura Gassner Odding. Oh yeah, um, which uh, she was just on Good Morning America earlier this week, and it's been uh, it's been great. It's been going really well. Um, and we have another one called Good Awkward, which is about embracing your awkward side. Um, I think perfect for you. Oh, is that the one that has my picture on the cover? <laughs> you know, you'd be the unofficial mascot, maybe. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> um, but uh, but those are two idea press ones. But one that I'm really excited about that is uh, that is not an idea press one that's coming is uh, called Knowing What We Know. Uh, it's by Simon Winchester, who I've been reading for a long time. He's he's a kind of a long time author, and this book is all about. Uh, the knowledge and wisdom of humanity and how we can pass it on to the next generation. Oh, interesting. As opposed to just information, <laughs> knowledge and wisdom. <laughs> yeah. oh. That's right. That's right. Wow. Yeah. There's such a shortage of, of knowledge and wisdom now that information is ubiquitous. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that you've mentioned, your website, uh, your, your book website, those videos that you mentioned, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. And now a word to you, dear listener. I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Rohit and congratulate him on not just this book, but you know, joining the Seven Timers Club. And thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast and putting up with my really stupid jokes. Send, you know, send him a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or his website and uh, book him. Book him for a, a keynote, particularly if you're not in one of those 32 uh, countries. So guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so ridiculously good-looking. But I kind of think that Rohit keeps coming back on the show because he hears from listeners. So in other words, he's using me to get to you people. So make him feel welcome, <laughs> encourage him to come back. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcast, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote. You don't get out of here that easily, Mr. Bargava. Page 275, it may be easy to feel unaffected by some innovations if you don't work in the same industry they operate or aren't on the front lines of using them. But we believe every idea in this book will eventually impact each of us, no matter where we work or what generation, gender, or mindset we identify with. Respecting this shared human nature is often the real key 
to understanding the future normal. The book is The Future Normal, How We Will Live, Work, and Thrive in the Next Decade. The authors are Rohit Bargava and Henry Cotino Mason. Rohit, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you for another uh, amazing and fun discussion. I partially come for the audience and I partially come for you. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Today we welcome back Rohit Bargava for the seventh time to talk about the book he has co-authored with Henry Contino Mason, The Future Normal. Did I mess you up? (laughs) Yeah, let me start over just in case I can't use that.